we're coming today out of obedience to the Lord to study his word. So that's all I'm going to say about that, and we're going to get back on with church. That spoke this. I heard one amen. That's great. <laughs> we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 this morning. Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray together. And Father, by your powerful Holy Spirit, as we study your word, Lord, would you prepare our minds for actions. And Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, would give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we're continuing in First Peter, and today we're talking about what it means to set our hope fully on the grace of God. So that's the goal today, is to work on figuring out the strategy, the way that you and I are setting our hope on the right thing. So really, that's the goal this morning, is to figure out what does it mean for us to set our hope fully on the grace of God at his revelation. So as I've thought about that, and it's been such an eventful week, I don't know, I haven't slept real well this past week. Uh, for undisclosed reasons, uh, but you could probably guess. Uh, but I keep coming back to the, what do we need this morning? You know, what do we need this morning? And uh, graciously, I don't have to come up with the answer to that question. God's Word gives us the answers to the questions of our heart. And the answer is very simply, what you and I need to do this morning is we need to set our hope on the right thing. So that's the goal this morning. We're going to set our hope on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? What is 1 Peter telling us? Well, if you look at 1 Peter, uh, you'll know that we've been in 1 Peter for several weeks now. And uh, if you remember, uh, Peter is telling Christians that we are exiles. You know, he mentions that in this uh, very passage, that we are in a time of exile. We are sojourners. And a sojourner is just somebody who lives in a country where they're not really a citizen. They are a resident alien, but they're not a citizen of that country. They're just sort of passing through. Uh, there are things that they appreciate about the country in which they live, but they're never really fully embraced by that country. And what Peter is telling Christians is in very similar ways, that is how you and I live this life. We are exiles in this world. We seek the city that is to come as the book of Hebrews talks about. And the book of Hebrews even says that even Abraham lived as a sojourner on this earth, looking forward to the city that God would build one day. And so Peter consistently tells 
uh, God's people, and he reminds them that now we are still in that state of seeking that city that is to come, of seeking the return of the king and the renewal of all things. So really, what that means for us is Peter is speaking to his audience, telling them they are exiles in this life. They're not going to fully fit in. They're going to experience rejection and reviling and insulting. And of course, God, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us today, reminding us of the same thing through me, who is reminding you of the words of God, that you and I are exiles and sojourners in this world. We're not going to totally line up with this world, that we should expect a fiery trial and the testing of our faith, as Peter already said right there in verse 7 of chapter 1, that there is going to be the testing of our faith. And of course, uh, we are called to live a certain way in this life, right? And so what is it that we're supposed to be setting our hope on? You know, how do we live in this life knowing that Christ is returning and that even if we die, we will be with him? Well, of course, in our passage Uh, Peter tells his audience to focus on holiness, right? (laughs) Uh, That there's a distinct way that you and I are supposed to operate in this world. Uh, But before we get into a discussion of how we're supposed to live, it's important to remember right there in verse 13, notice that first word. Uh, In Calvin's commentary, it's amazing to me, in John Calvin's commentary in 1 Peter, how much time Calvin can spend on one word. (laughs) He writes several sentences on the importance of that word, therefore, And his point is, he says, we have to understand what is the sum that Peter is talking about? What is the the therefore referring to? Well, the reason we live as exiles and rejects is primarily is because our Savior lived as somebody who was rejected by man and despised by people. And so, therefore, he sets for us an example But the amazing thing about Jesus is not just that he sticks out and everybody hated Jesus and, you know, everybody's bad, so we're all going to hate each other. The amazing thing about Jesus is, as Peter will say, even though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And even when he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the incredible story of Jesus is that even though he did nothing wrong, there was no deceit in his mouth. He never sinned. He was the most holy person who has ever walked on this earth. Even though he was set apart unto God, people rejected him. And of course, they crucified him. And that should shock us uh, that God would enter our world and then we would crucify him. But the amazing surprise of the gospel message is that this was God's definite plan from the foundation of the world. Uh, Look at verse 20 right there. It says this message that Jesus would come, that God would enter our broken, divisive world and offer forgiveness and healing. This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Right there in verse 20, he says Jesus was foreknown. That word foreknown means not just that God foresaw it happening, but that God determined that it would happen. Uh, Peter's not saying it was a possibility that Jesus would save this world. It was foreknown. It was predetermined before this world was ever founded that he would be revealed to us in the last times for our sake who believe in him. And the amazing thing is that even though Jesus was holy and rejected, God had planned this from the very beginning because when Jesus was beaten and rejected by man, he was doing it actually to appease the wrath of God against sin. And he was beaten and crucified to take the punishment that our sins deserved. 
See, this is what uh, theologians will sometimes call the divine exchange. See, when God entered our world, we gave him all of our sin, and he took all of the punishment and all of the wrath against sin that you and I justly deserved. He took all of our sin. And amazingly, what he also does is he not just takes the punishment you and I deserve, the amazing reality of the gospel is that Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. You see, the Bible will use all kinds of metaphors to explain the gospel, but one of the most consistent ones is to think in the legal terms. Uh, think about it like this. Like, uh, Jesus will talk about it sometimes as a debt. Uh, you and I have this incredible debt. It's billions and billions of dollars that we could never pay. And what Jesus does is Jesus forgives the debt. He pays it with his own precious blood. But the gospel is not just about God forgiving us of our sins. He doesn't just wipe us clean. The incredible thing, Christian, is that he then gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just forgive the debt. Jesus puts your name on his bank account. You have the riches of his great love. This is the great love with which he lavishes upon us. And what all throughout the New Testament, the apostles are trying to get you to understand is not just that you're forgiven, but that you are righteous in the sight of God. He will never forsake you or leave you. Your name is on the checkbook. You're not just out of debt. You are rich immeasurably. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it will last forever. Friends, this is the hope the radical, life-changing hope that Christians have. This is why we plead with everyone to be reconciled to God. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is when uh, Paul has been arrested and been in prison for years. And he starts to actually go before the civil magistrates. He goes before the government because he's all in trouble for preaching Christ. And he starts talking to Herod. King Herod. And you know what Paul starts doing? Does he give a defense for his legal rights? He doesn't. You know, what, you know what Paul starts doing? Paul starts telling him the gospel and telling him he should believe the prophets, believe that the Old Testament prophets pointed to the Messiah and that he can be forgiven and become a child of God in faith. And you know what Herod says? Herod says, oh, do you, do you want to convince me to be a Christian like you? <laughs> you know, watching Paul sit there in chains. And Paul says, I wish you were just like me except for the chains. <laughs> See, friends, uh, Paul's burning passion in life, no matter what it cost him, was to preach the love of God to people. But it was not in denial to God's justice or his wrath. Both of those things meet incredibly at the cross. We have a God who is our Father, but he judges impartially. And our hope is not that he sweeps things under the rug, the hope is that he really has taken the punishment for us. And he really has put you on the bank account. <laughs> uh, Paul even says that you are a co-heir with Christ. So Peter, right, is thinking of the gospel of our salvation in that first word, therefore. <laughs> See, this is what Calvin does, right? Verse 13, therefore, knowing the gospel what are we supposed to do now, right? Well, that's all great and lovely, but, you know, I don't plan on dying today, and I don't, I don't know if Jesus is coming back today, so what am I supposed to do now? 
okay, well, what are we supposed to do, right? Well, I know the gospel. I know this is all true. But, okay, how does that help me live in the here and the now? Well, it may be helpful to know that oftentimes when you and I read the Bible, um, this is just sort of a side note. I won't charge you for this. This is just helpful information. A lot of times when you and I read the Bible, there is this important dichotomy happening whenever you read, especially the New Testament letters. And it goes like this. The Bible will tell you what you are, and then it will tell you what to do about it. And it is very, very important that you get that order correctly. Here's what you are. Now live like it. The gospel is not do a bunch of good things and maybe you'll be forgiven. It's not do all these right deeds and maybe your good will outweigh your bad. God's consistent pattern of grace is always, here's what you are, here is what I have done for you, now live like it. In the Old Testament, God delivered the people out of Egypt. He ransomed them from slavery. He brought them to the promised land. And after he had delivered them from slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, and after the chariots were swept away in the sea, after their deliverance, after they were set free, God gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law and say, well, once you figure it out, you knuckleheads, then maybe I'll think about getting you out of slavery. God redeems them from slavery, then gives him the Ten Commandments and says, this is how free people live. This is how free people live. Theologians call this the indicative and the imperative. This is what you are. Now live like it. Indicative means what it is. The imperative is a command. What Peter is telling you, that the gospel works the same way. You are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Your name is on the bank account. That is who you are. Now, Learn to live like a free person. Learn to live like a person who has been redeemed. God has taken you out of slavery to sin. He has saved you from the futile ways of all of this world and all of their life advices and all of their philosophies. He has redeemed you. Why would you go back there? Live like somebody who's been redeemed. So I'm going to give you some things to do, but I'm not, I'm not denying the gospel. In fact, this is how the gospel works its way out. I am forgiven. Now I need to learn to live like a free person. Therefore, knowing the gospel, here's how we put it into practice. So what I want to suggest to you in this passage is there's simply two things that you and I should be doing as Christians in light of the gospel, right? Not, not so that we get the gospel, but because the gospel is true for us. How are we supposed to live? Look right there in verse 13 with me. What does Peter say? Therefore, knowing everything I've just said, here's the first thing that Christians should be doing in this life, ex exiles and sojourners. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter goes on and says, live a holy life. So the two things that I want to point out to you this morning very simply is, number one, the way that we live as the free people of God, as those redeemed by the blood, the very precious blood of Jesus, 
The first thing is we need to prepare our minds for action. Use your brain. (laughs) God didn't just give you a heart. He gave you a brain, too, and he wants you to use it. Be sober in your thinking. Use your brain. That's what Peter says. Use your brain. (laughs) Sober up, metaphorically or literally. Sober up. Use your brain and strive for holiness. Right? Does that make sense? And then uh, Peter gives us two reasons for why we should be doing this. Right? And what I want you to grasp, though, is I think it's just so beautiful, is that our whole focus is the hope that you and I have. Right? We, we use our brains because of our hope. Right? And we strive for holiness because of our hope of Christ. Right? And so hope is the whole focus of this. Um, if you look at this whole passage, I think this is just so beautiful. Um, if you look from sort of verses 3 through 21, this is seen as sort of the introduction uh, to the epistle of Peter. But if you look at verse 3, uh, Peter mentions hope in verse 3. And then in our passage, he mentions to set our uh, hope fully on the grace, right there in verse 13. And then in our last verse, in verse 21, Paul ends, uh, Peter ends this section with what? Hope in God. So three times hope is mentioned in this passage. And he begins thinking about hope. And then in our specific section, at the heart of it, Peter mentions hope. And then he ends this section on hope. And uh, to sort of understand the emphasis there, what I want you to focus on is that setting our hope right now is the focus of this whole section of Peter. Uh, You know, it reminds me of... um, you know when you see Canadian geese flying in the sky? You ever seen the Canada geese up there? They're not Canadian geese. Canadians are people. Canada geese are, are birds, right? You know, there's an ornithologist somewhere correcting me, you know. But I love birds, and I love theology. I identify as an ornithologist, but anyway. The, um, you know, when you see, you know, the, the birds, you know, if you've ever seen this, right, what's going on, right? Well, you can imagine sort of like hope is on the end, and hope is on the other end, but right in the center, there's always one Canada goose that's like just jugging as hard as he can, right? That's the focus of the flying V, right? That's very similar to our passage, right? Hope begins our passage, but the real emphasis of this passage is learning what it means to set our hope on Christ, and then, of course, the passage ends with hope. Uh, so whenever you think about this, think of like the sentence we're talking about is like, the, is like that one Canada goose that's just working harder than everybody. This is the whole focus of this section, Um, Does anyone know why one side is always longer than the other? Do you know why? It's actually pretty profound. It's because there's more birds on that side. (laughs) You may have to think about that for a while. I did tell you to use your brain, right? That's, That's the hope. Right? Our hope, our hope is on the right thing. And I think it's so important that we focus on hope. You know, um, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, I don't know if you've read The Weight of Glory, but C.S. Lewis says these words. He says, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off from, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always felt that we are on the outside of, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits and also the healing of that old ache. So this is our hope. Jesus Christ and his return, that's our hope. It's going to heal that old ache in our hearts. And now we have to figure out, okay, how does that work itself out in my life right now? So like I said, let's prepare our minds for action. Right there, look at verse 13. Prepare your minds 
for action. You know, um, okay, so literally, I do need to say this because it's super weird, and it also be like the, th the one thing you remember that I say because it's so strange. Technically, uh, literally, what, what Peter says is he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, so if you don't know what loins are, ask your parents after the service. But what he's saying he says, gird up the loins of your mind, is he's using an ancient metaphor that everybody else would have understood except for us. And you have to think, in the ancient world, people would have worn, you know, sort of long robes. Everybody wore a robe. Even soldiers wore robes. But when they ran into battle, right, or when they needed to go do some hard labor, they would have to sort of roll up the robe and then wrap it around with a belt so that they could, you know, run around and do stuff, right? They go into battle. That's not how, they didn't go into battle like that, but you get the image, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know, maybe there's someone like me in battle, who knows? But they would gird up their loins, right? They would, they would just pull up, you know, the robe a little bit so they could have some maneuverability. All it means was to prepare for action, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean battle, it could also mean running, which is why I really like this translation, prepare your mind for action. Whatever you're needing to do, prepare your mind, right? And remember what Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, right, is this is how we set our hope on the grace of God. This is how we live today, knowing that one day that old ache really will be healed. But here and now, we're supposed to use our brains. He uses another metaphor, right? He says, be sober-minded. See right there in verse 10, he says, be sober, which means don't be drunk, right? Don't be distracted. Uh, don't be just sort of placating your mind with distracting things, you know, sober up. Not so that you can have sort of, sort of dour, unhappy life, but so that you can think rationally. You know, uh, we, we need to be using our brains. You know, I think one of my, one of my greatest fears as a pastor, uh, especially today in America, is we're, is we're raising a generation of young people and we're raising a generation of adults, honestly, who do not know what they think is true. And they do not know what they think is true about God. All they really know is how they feel about God and what they feel is true. Did you hear that? Do you know what's true or do you just go off of your feelings? What Peter says is part of the way that we set our hope on God in this life right now is we use our brains. We gird up the loins of our minds. We prepare our minds for action. We embrace sober thinking. Not so that we can be sober, but so that we can think rationally. We can actually discern what's going on around us. God does not want you, when you come to church, to leave your brain in your car and just bring your heart. I'm sorry. He wants all of you. You are to love the Lord with all of your feelings and good feelings and happy thoughts and positive emotional states. Is that what he says? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a holistic understanding. So we have to gird up our minds, right? So I want you to realize, though, that this is, this is not just Peter saying this. Don't just hear me saying that or just Peter. I mean, this is what Jesus says. Peter gets the metaphor. He pulls up, gird up the loins of your mind, you know. He gets that from Jesus himself. Jesus says in Luke 12, he tells his followers, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake 
when he comes. The Bible uses a lot of metaphors for how we're supposed to live this life. Sober thinking, girding up the loins of our mind, preparing our minds for actions, staying awake. Awake to what? Well, Peter says one of the great dangers that we have in this life is just sort of going along with the world, going along with their values, what they accept. We say whatever they vilify, we vilify. Whatever they embrace, we are going to embrace. And what Peter is saying is saying, Christian, use your mind. Don't go back to the feudal ways of your forefathers. And when he says feudal ways, what he means is that nobody's world philosophy and no worldly example can lead you to God except Jesus Christ. Know that if he really is the only way to know God, why would you go to anybody else for life advice? Either Jesus really is the Son of God or he's not. And if he is, you and I can trust him. You and I can trust him. We have to be thinking and assessing the world around us. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, it's amazing to me that when the people are brought out of slavery from Egypt, I mean, they were slaves for 400 years. And when God delivers them miraculously and feeds them from, with manna from heaven and he makes water come out of a rock and he delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh, after a few weeks, you know what they say? Oh, man, I miss the food of Egypt. They say, remember when you used to eat leeks? We don't even know what those are. They're a vegetable, I think. I don't know. They probably taste terrible. But the reason they say that is because even though they have been brought out of slavery, you know, even though they have been brought out of Egypt, Egypt is still somehow in their hearts. And they yearn for it, even though they know it's wrong for us. Well, as Christians, we're in the exact same boat. Even though we are new creatures in Christ, the old man, as Paul will talk about it, still lingers. And there's still this sense, there's still this pull to be accepted by this world, to not put our faces out there so that people would ridicule us, to go along with the world. And what Peter is saying, he's saying, wake up. Wake up. Think soberly. Prepare your minds for action. Don't go back to the feudal ways that never led you to the truth anyway. Why would you do that? Don't go back to your former ignorance. You know, how, how would that look? Well, you know, I don't want to uh, prolong this, but what I can tell you is there's a, there's a wonderful book. Um, you know, it's not the Bible, but I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I'd encourage anybody to read it. Uh, it was just written a few months ago. It's called Live Not by Lies uh, by a guy named Rod Dreher. And what he does is he, I think he's attempting to show Christians what it means to prepare our minds for action. And whether or not you, you read it, uh, I think the most helpful thing that he does is he says, Christians, our strategy is this. We need to see, judge, act. See what's going on in our world. Judge it based off of Scripture. And then act. See what's going on. Stay awake. Stay sober. Prepare your minds. Judge whether or not it's in line with human flourishing and God's truth and then act upon your convictions. See, judge, act. Very simple, right? And the reason we need to stay awake is because we know Jesus is returning, and we know that when we die, we're going to be with him. So why would, we, why would we break out of the flying V and go somewhere else when we know that the sinner is what's going to lead us to Christ? You know, um, what I, you, know, you, know that, you know that those goofy movies, Pirates of the Caribbean? I love them. Even the bad ones I enjoy. 
Even, even the goofy ones, I, I'm a fan of. But the, my favorite thing in that movie is when Jack Sparrow, you know, he has that compass. If you haven't seen the movie, he's one of the main characters, has a compass, and whatever his heart yearns for, that's what the compass points to, right? So one of the running, you know, metaphors in the whole movie is, what does he really want? Because sometimes the compass doesn't know where to point because he doesn't know what he wants. But Christian, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours. Set the compass of your heart to Christ. And as you do that on this journey, prepare your minds for action. Second thing to do, as Paul, uh, Peter will say, right, is he says you, we need to be thinking like obedient children, don't be conformed to this world. Uh, verse 16, he says, God wants us to be holy as he is holy. So not only are we preparing our minds, we embrace holiness, right? I know holiness is not really like a popular idea to preach on right now, uh, but um, if, you, if you stumble, of course, hearing someone encourage you to be holy, think about it this way, maybe. Um, when I say, you know, you're called to be holy, what I primarily mean is you are called to live like Jesus. That's what holiness is. We see holiness in the face of Jesus Christ. Who's the most holy person that's ever walked this earth? It was Jesus. That's what holiness is. It doesn't mean you have a life lacking of joy or enjoyment. What it means is you're living like Jesus. You're following him. He is the example of what holiness is, right? So whether or not you stumble over the word holiness, it's following Christ. And really, holiness means you're set apart. You're somehow distinct. You're different, right? That's what holiness was in the Old Testament, that God's people were going to be set apart. They were going to follow his rules, right? They were going to be redeemed. They were going to be free, and they were going to live like it. And us today, as Christians, we stand in that same stream. We are set apart as holy. What makes us different? Well, Peter, uh, and you need to hear me on this, Peter makes this point repeatedly throughout the letter you, it's hard to even find a chapter in 1 Peter that he will not make this point. Primarily, what makes Christians different, what sets them apart, is not that we judge people and call them idiots or look down on them. What sets Christians primarily apart is that we have been forgiven and we forgive others. Paul says, when you are reviled, do not revile in return. Instead, bless. 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, even when you are wronged, do not wrong people in return. Our holiness is actually tied up in our ability to love those who are wronging us. It is not in our ability to be angry at them. That would be the futile ways of this world. What sets us apart is the love of Christ for even people we maybe would personally dislike. In chapter 2, Peter says this is the example Jesus set for us. This is primarily what a holy life looks like. I obey God and God alone, and God tells me to love all people, even my enemies. Therefore, I'm not going to go along with this world and hate other people. I'm going to love them, and I'm going to call everyone I can to repentance and faith in him because that's what Jesus tells me to do. And that's what it means to be set apart. That's what it means to be holy. Right? We're not just different from the world to annoy the world. We're different to bring light to the world. You know, it's one of the, one of the sadder things uh, when you think about that is R.C. Sproul, uh, if you remember the late R.C. Sproul, uh, in his commentary on First Peter, he points out that early on in Christianity, uh, people like Justin Martyr 
when he would be forced to give a defense of Christians, you know, before like Emperor Pius, before the emperor, Justin Martyr, was able to say, here's what we believe as Christians, and you shouldn't persecute us. And you know what Justin Martyr appeals to? He appeals to the purity and the character of Christians as a defense. And R.C. Sproul, you know, I don't even know R.C. Sproul, he's mad about everything. He's like, can you believe, ever imagine doing that today? Do you think we could ever defend ourselves as Christians for our moral upstanding? You know, I mean, what a, what a Calvinist Sproul was, right? But it does make me think, does the purity of my life take away from the glory of Christ? Does our testimony as a church take away or add to it? You know, when I think about being holy, I'll just, I'll just mention this. Uh, to me, this is, this, is like, this is profoundly different than anything this world has ever seen. Um, you may remember a few years ago, I think it was 2015, um, some of our brothers and sisters in the Lord um, were really brothers. Uh, Twelve of them were taken to a beach, uh, Coptic Christians, which meant they were from Egypt. Uh, they were taken by members of ISIS, and they were beheaded. Did you watch the video? You may have seen it. Uh, they were beheaded for being Christians, and all 12 of the Christians, um, before they were killed, they just screamed Jesus' name before they died. And uh, a few days later, on Egyptian radio, on Egyptian radio, uh, some radio show hosts found some of the family members of those Christian men who were beheaded. And they interviewed them. And they said, you know, what do you think about your brother being beheaded? And this sister said on the radio, I'm translating, obviously, she wasn't speaking English. She said, I will tell you frankly, since the Roman times, we as Christians have been targeted as martyrs. This only helps us to endure such crises because the Bible tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. And the interviewers, they're stunned. And the guy says, I want to ask you a question about your faith. He wants to test if she actually believes this stuff or not. You know, this is primarily a Muslim country. He says, would you or someone from your family get upset if we were to ask for forgiveness to those who killed your brothers? What if we, what if we asked you to forgive them? How would you respond then? And the young woman said, today I was speaking with my mother and asking her what she would do if she saw one of the ISIS members on the street. She said this, and I am repeating it honestly, not because I am on the air. She said she would invite him home because he has helped us enter the kingdom of God. Believe me, these were my mother's words. I asked her, what will you do if you saw those ISIS members passing on the street and I told you that that's the man who slayed your son? She said, I will ask God to open his eyes and ask him into our house because he's helped us enter the kingdom of God. Friends, that's the holiness that the world needs to see in us. We need to learn from these Egyptian Christians what it means to love our enemies. We need to be able to defend ourselves I don't think we're facing easy days ahead. But will your life reflect holiness or the futile ways of this world? Are we going to hate others and be hated by them? Or is the hope of the gospel going to burrow its way down? And are you actually going to strive for the holiness of God? Not to earn God's forgiveness, but because his grace makes you yearn to live like that. The world has yet to understand that. And when it does, it ceases to be the world. And it becomes the kingdom of God. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Let me just finish up. Very simply, 
Peter gives us a few reasons. In verse 17, he says, we live like this because we have come to know God as our Father. We don't fear him. We don't fear him in the sense that he's going to cast us to hell. We fear him in the sense that we don't want to dare disappoint him or upset him or, or misrepresent him to the world. We do this because we have known the love of a father. Uh, you know, Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite pastors, he said it this way on Twitter, of all things. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. But ultimately, not only do we know God as Father, uh, Peter wants us to understand right there in verse 18 and 19 that ultimately our motivation for girding up our minds and our motivation for striving for that holiness is because we take Christ's death for us seriously. It's because we have known that he shed his precious blood for us. And if that doesn't motivate you, friends, you don't know the power of the gospel yet. That's the power. That's the wind in your wings. That's the motivation you have to live like this, knowing that God shed his very precious blood. You know, my uh, favorite pastor uh, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe I should just finish with this, but he helped me better understand God's grace than uh, probably any other living pastor. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote this word. And if you know anything about Bonhoeffer, he lived during the Nazi Germany era and was killed by the Nazis uh, in 1944. But before he died, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, he was trying to challenge Christians uh, very similarly to how Paul does. And he says, he's basically making the case, God's forgiveness and grace should not motivate you to more sin. God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance and holiness. And his point is, is that grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. And he goes on to explain it like this. He says, grace is costly because it calls us to discipleship. But it is grace because it calls us to Jesus Christ. It is costly because it may cost people their lives. But it is grace because it actually gives them true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us that was costly to God. Friends, I think Peter's making that same point knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, what do we need this week? <laughs> I would not dare to tell you, but what I can tell you on behalf of Christ and Peter is that we need to set our hope on the living God are you ready to gird up your mind and strive for holiness? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it gives us. Uh, Lord, we pray that by your powerful Holy Spirit, that for those of us who are still dead in sin and unconverted, that today would be the day that we would know that we are marked as forgiven people, that we would have a new desire to strive for holiness, to be different than this world, to embrace the call to be set apart. 
And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom in this world that we are facing. Lord, that we really would prepare our minds for whatever you would call us to do and that we would be found pleasing in your sight. Amen. And friends, as we uh, continue in our worship, we get to take communion together this morning. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to remember and testify to our unity in Christ, uh, that we are saved not by anything we do, by, but by what we receive from the hand of God himself.